And as you do that, let's, <clears throat> let's just uh, turn to God again in prayer. Father, it is our prayer that you would fix our eyes upon Christ this morning. Help us to see Jesus clearly for who he is. Open our eyes, open our ears, Lord. Help us to understand. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the, we're in the midst of um, our study of the gospel according to John. And uh, last week, we picked up where we left off back in May. Um, and we saw in these first 15 verses of John chapter 6 uh, that Jesus is the bread of life. We saw that the feeding of the 5,000 with just five barley loaves and, and two fish, while that was a miracle, it really was a sign pointing to Jesus' true identity. And all throughout this chapter, all throughout John chapter 6, we're supposed to be reminded constantly of the people of Israel wandering through the desert, as in the time of the Exodus, needing food, dependent upon God for all of their things, being led by the prophet Moses. But what this chapter is, is supposed to do is bring us to the realization, bring us to the understanding that Jesus is actually a better Moses. That's Jesus, that Jesus' bread is better than Moses' bread, his manna, because Jesus is the bread of life. And in verse 14 of John 6, when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, when they saw the, the 12 baskets full of leftovers, they proclaimed in verse 14, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And they were right. But then they tried to take him by force and make him king, and that was not his plan. Because they had a, they had a, a, a small, a puny, pathetic view of what a king should be that he would live for a few decades at best, maybe even overthrow the mighty Roman Empire and then pass on his kingdom to the next king. And so in verse 15, the people proved themselves to be, to be sidetracked really with their current circumstances as slaves to the Romans in submission to the Roman Empire. And so Jesus in response to their attempts, he withdraws to the mountain by himself because his time had not yet come. And so what we see here in today's passage, in these few verses, is, is not only that Jesus' bread is, is better than Moses' bread, but that Jesus' exodus is also better than Moses' exodus. Remember, this is of vital importance for us to understand. It's so important that John spends really an entire chapter, and a, and a long chapter at that, he spends an entire chapter showing us or mirroring for us the ministries of Moses and Jesus. John has spent the first five chapters of his gospel proving that Jesus is the creator, proving that he is the word made flesh and that Jesus is the son of God. And then he tells us up in chapter 20 that by believing those things, by looking at those signs and believing those things, we, we will have life in his name. By believing in the name of Jesus Christ, 
all too often today, churches teach and, and Christians believe that Jesus is here for me, just for me. If I just ask Jesus into my heart, whatever that means, I will have a better whatever, a better life, a better marriage, better kids, better retirement, whatever. But here in this passage, and throughout the Gospel of John, we see that, that I'm not the point. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the point here. Jesus is the end of our faith. Jesus is why we are created. Jesus is the end of all things. We read in Revelation 22. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the point of salvation. He's the point of all things. All things were created by Him and and for Him. And John is stressing here that Jesus is better than Moses. Moses himself has told us this. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, beginning in verse 15, really 15 to 19, Moses addressed the people of God. And he said to them, "The, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as, you listened to, uh, uh, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see his great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And Jesus fulfills this promise from Deuteronomy 18. And John's purpose in this chapter, really the entire book of the gospel according to John, but especially this chapter, is to prove this to us. So let's look at this. John chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 16 through 21, just these five verses or so. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. It's a pretty brief, straightforward text of Scripture. A few short verses, but it is loaded with symbolism. It's loaded with imagery that links this chapter together. Remember, John didn't put this here just on a whim. He's connecting all of these things. And so this this, uh, section, these few verses, links the chapter together. And it continues to to point us, as I said, back to Israel at the time of the Exodus. But but before we go any further, um, I want to mention that we have to be careful in reading double meanings into the text of Scripture. Be very careful reading double meanings into the text of Scripture or or spiritualizing the normal things of life, especially these narrative sections, especially sections where it just says, here's what happened. John MacArthur, in his book, uh, Charismatic Chaos, he gives us this example. He he writes this. He says, a well-known charismatic preacher did a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. 
And if you remember, the book of Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem uh, after their time of exile. As he taught, MacArthur writes, just about everything in the book represented something else or, or meant something symbolic. So these are among his points. Jerusalem's walls were in ruin, and that speaks of the broken down walls of the human personality. Nehemiah represents the Holy Spirit who comes to rebuild the walls of the human personality. And when the pastor got to the king's pool in chapter 2, verse 14, he said it referred to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And from there he went on to teach of the importance of speaking in tongues. MacArthur goes on to say this. He says, The book of Nehemiah has nothing to do with the walls of the human personality, baptism of the Spirit, or speaking in tongues. But when a preacher reads that kind of application into the story, some people think it's marvelous Bible teaching. He says, I say it isn't. It's hucksterism. It makes the Bible say what we want in place of what God is saying to us. And so as 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17 says, Paul says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And so we need to be very careful reading any kind of double meanings into Scripture. Usually, narrative portions of the Bible simply tell us what happened at a certain point in history. So verses 16 and 17, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum, and it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. That means exactly what it says. That means exactly what it says. But every once in a while, we come across a, a passage of Scripture where we read something, something like this in, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 41. Jesus says this, it says, it says, but he answered them, Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, I'm not going to exegete that today. I simply bring it up to point out that, that Jesus tells us that the Jonah story is actually about him. The Jonah story, the book of Jonah, is actually about Jesus, Jesus says. It points to him. In fact, we actually know that on the road to Emmaus, in the book of Luke, after his resurrection, Jesus tells a couple of disciples that all of the scriptures point to him. All of them point to him. This is, this is true. Sometimes disciples getting into the boat is simply disciples getting into a boat. So we need to be careful about reading double meanings into scripture. So this narrative here, this story, tells us how Jesus and his disciples, how they get from the, the far side, the far eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, over to the west side, near to the more familiar to them area of Capernaum. But why would John include this? Why would John put this here? As a, as a gospel writer, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John, maybe more than the others, leaves out details, especially details that others include. 
And he tells us things that others, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us. He gives us much more of Jesus' teaching. He tells us much more of what Jesus said, particularly surrounding the Last Supper. And so beginning, I think, around chapter 14 through 18 is just basically one long dinner conversation. But he records less than half of the miracles that the others, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, document for us. So why would John include this? He doesn't tell us how they got over to the far side to begin with. If you, if you look at John, if you kind of harmonize John with the other three gospel writers, um, they all include, include an account of the feeding of the 5,000, by the way. All four of them do. But if you look at those together and study that, it seems as though six months pass between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. During that time, Jesus does all kinds of things. John leaves it out completely, but he includes this. The answer is, the answer really to the why question here is because of the sign that we see here. This is sort of the obvious answer. We're talking about the signs that point to Jesus. And as soon as he got into the boat, they were immediately at the land, it says. So there's actually two signs. Not only did he walk on water, but he, or two miracles that make up one sign, really. Not only did he walk on water, but immediately they were safe. They were at their destination. And so these two miracles really become the sign that we're supposed to see. And so we're supposed to read these verses and see and understand that Jesus walking on the sea, walking on the lake, on the Sea of Galilee, is a witness to his true identity and that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But these verses here in John also bring up a couple of questions. So for example, as I said all three, all four gospel writers, the three others, also include the feeding of the 5,000. And Matthew and Mark record this event as well. Um, but they give us more details. Matthew tells us that Peter actually got out of the boat and walked with him for at least for a moment. Mark tells us that Jesus was actually going to walk right past them. He was just headed for the other side, it reads. There's some other details Uh, included in the others too. Matthew's the most detailed if you want to read that. John is actually the least detailed. Why does he include the details that he does include? Well, is there a reason that John writes exactly what he writes? I believe that there is. And so this morning I want to point out three details. Three details that we need to see and understand as we understand who this man is. This man who walks on water. These are just three statements directly from this passage. So let me give you all three, and then we're going to go back and look at them. The first is kind of the end of verse 17. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Detail number one for us to see. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Detail number two is verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And then the third detail is the only words spoken in this scene. And it is what Jesus said in verse 20. It is I, do not be afraid. It is I, do not be afraid. Now, because we have a high view of Scripture, because we take the Bible seriously as the very word of God, we have to look at the 
we have to look at this text, we have to look at these verses, and we have to answer the question, what's the point? What is John trying to communicate with us? This is the very definition, by the way, of, of what we call expository preaching, where we, we expose the meaning of the Bible verses. The point of the text must be the point of what I'm trying to say to you. And so out of the corner of our eyes, as we work through this passage, out of the corner of our eyes, in the back of our mind, we're keeping John 6.35. This is the central verse in the chapter, the, the hinge verse, the point of the chapter. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But we can't really understand what he's saying there. We can't really understand those claims in isolation. We need the entire chapter. We need the entire book to really understand what Jesus is saying. And so this passage helps us out. And, and frankly, that's too long of an introduction. I know that. So let's get into these verses. Verses 15 through 17 again. Or 16. Let me read 15, 16, and 17. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So earlier in the day, Jesus had fed these 5,000 men along with the women and children, and, and they responded by, by nearly taking him by force to be their king. But now in the evening, evidently, Jesus is off in the mountains alone and the disciples start back to Capernaum. Now, of his disciples, at least Andrew and Simon Peter and James and John were professional fishermen. Chapter 1 tells us that Philip and Nathaniel were from Galilee. So they were experienced sailors and there were locals aboard this boat. The other eyewitness account of this evening tells us that Jesus had gone off by himself to pray. But here John keeps our attention on the disciples. In verses 16 and 17, he's focusing on the disciples. So picture this scene. A group of young men, probably fairly young, early 20s at best. Some of them maybe even teenagers. But they've grown up in the area some of them have grown up on the sea, fishing with their fathers, James and John in particular, sons of Zebedee. They've grown up in the area, they've grown up on the sea, and they set off in a, in a fairly small boat, um, and the sun is setting. They've been eyewitnesses to some incredible things. They've seen him heal people. They've been traveling with him, and they have just witnessed him feed 5,000 families, say, 5,000 men plus women and children with just a, a little boy's lunch and had huge amounts of leftovers, a basket for each of them. They've just witnessed all of these things. They've seen this very large crowd attempt to make their rabbi into a king, and yet it, they saw him refuse. They saw him go off into the mountains by himself. You could probably imagine the discussion they were ha having. You could probably imagine the, the missed opportunities that they were lamenting. If, what if he really did become king? But after they'd been rowing for a little while, the sun had set and the wind began to pick up. John wants us to picture these young men out on an angry sea 
in the dark without Jesus. And then we read this first detail. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. On the one hand, as I said, it means exactly what it says. It's dark out, and Jesus isn't there. They left, they'd shove off sometime in the evening, and now, a while later, uh, the sun had fully set, it is dark, and as they were partway across the sea, Jesus is not with them. But look carefully at John's word choice. He says, Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, in Mark, in his account of this story, he tells us in Mark 6.45, it says, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. But John seems to have a very different purpose for giving us this detail this way. It says he was now, it was now dark and Jesus was, had not yet come to them. We could say it was now dark because Jesus had not yet come to them. It was now dark because Jesus had not yet come to them. Can we say that? Well, naturally speaking, we can't. Naturally speaking, we can't say that. It was dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. Naturally speaking, those things are not related. Um, They're isolated ideas. It's not a cause and effect. And so other than working as sort of a time marker, just saying it's dark, Jesus isn't there, other than that, these two concepts really don't have anything to do with each other, naturally speaking. Yet these two statements are intrinsically linked, spiritually speaking. We know this because John had said all the way back in his introduction, in John chapter 1, the first uh, verses 4 and 5, he said, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Spiritually speaking, this is cause and effect. Or really, we should say effect and cause. It was dark because Jesus had not yet come to them. Matthew Henry, in his old commentary, he lived a couple hundred years ago. In his own comment, old commentary, he, he says this of this verse. He says, the absence of Christ is the great aggravation of the troubles of Christians. The absence of Christ is the great aggravation of the troubles of Christians. This is true. I might change that slightly, though. I might say something like this, the absence of Christ is the great aggravation of the troubles of all people. The absence of Christ is the great aggravation of the troubles of all people. I would dare say that probably many of us in here um, have been to the funeral of an unbeliever. Probably you've been to the funeral of an unbeliever or someone who belonged maybe to an unbelieving family. I preached a few of those. I've never been with a group of more hopeless people than those who are saying goodbye to a loved one and are grasping at straws. They're looking for some glimpse of hope in in whatever kind of mystical experience or, or memories that they can conjure up. But the absence of Christ is the great aggravation of the troubles of people. People who are wandering around in the dark because Jesus had not yet come to them. See, this sentence is, it's really a metaphor for the world. Especially during John's day, especially for the people of Israel. 
although no less really for the world today. Again, John will say in his introduction back in chapter 1, verses 6 to 13, John says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John, that is John the Baptist he's talking about. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They, didn't, they still didn't understand who Jesus was. He came to his own people, and they didn't receive him. The crowd had just tried to make him king, yet they should have understood all of this imagery because God had called his people. All the way back in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, he had said, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And when Christ comes along, he will proclaim himself to be, a little bit later in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And while he hasn't said that yet here in John chapter 6, he's proving that it is nevertheless true. He is the light of the world. And if, if you're a Christian today, you know that this is true as well. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light of the world. At one time, you were, metaphorically speaking, just like these disciples, in the dark, adrift at sea, even lost. Yet, to take away the metaphor, the Bible says explicitly that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But then Jesus came to us, and it changed everything. Peter, Simon Peter, one of the men in this boat, one of the men familiar with the Sea of Galilee. One of the men familiar with fishing. He wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He said, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, now think about that statement for a moment. Think about those verses. Did you catch the, um, so in, in English we would call this the, the indicatives? Did you catch the, the indicatives, the, the truths that are indicated for those for whom God has, uh, sh on whom God has shown the light of the gospel? H here they are. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. 
If God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, then you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Those are just statements of fact. You don't have to do anything there. If God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, those things are true for you, for us, for Christians. There's only one imperative, only one thing that it is imperative that we do, only one command that as a result of all that he has done for us, and that is this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's the only imperative there, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How do we do that? How do we proclaim those excellencies? In believing those statements there from Second Peter, or First Peter rather, um, how do we proclaim his excellencies? Well, we, we run from sin and we imitate God. Paul will say it like this in Ephesians chapter 5. Turn over there, I want you to see these verses. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no uh, uh, filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. And anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So here... On the Sea of Galilee, late at night, John simply says it was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. And we take that for what it says. But we also know that when Jesus comes to us, and he will, as he described to Paul in Acts chapter 26, verses 16, 17, and 18, when Christ tells him this, he says, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and to witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, Jesus tells Paul, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness 
to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In other words, to move from darkness to light, as Paul proclaims to us in the Scriptures, as we read in the Bible, to move from darkness to light is to receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, made holy by faith in Jesus. But then this passage doesn't stop there. It doesn't just simply say it was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The second detail for us to notice here is verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. At this point, in the other accounts, in Matthew and Mark, um, they put a little bit more stress on the strength and violence of this storm. Um, Geographically speaking, the Sea of Galilee is prone to sudden, strong storms. But some of these men were experienced fishermen who'd grown up in these parts. No doubt, they'd been out in strong storms before. And so they knew what to expect. But as with the previous verse, we have to see that there's something more going on here. And so when I was putting together this sermon, I I titled it, When Sea Billows Roll, which is, of course, from the hymn, It Is Well, It Is Well With My Soul, um, which is a hymn really of lament. But this isn't a lament. This is not a lament here. We might be prone to assume that these disciples are suffering here due to the storm. But this author, John, who was one of the fishermen, by the way, doesn't seem concerned. Now, Matthew, who was a tax collector in his account, so he was a a desk jockey like me, Matthew was concerned. Matthew expressed that in his account, that they were afraid. John just simply says that it was a windy storm. But instead of them being afraid of the storm, we do see some fear. Verse 19, when when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat, and they were frightened of Him. They were frightened of Him. The hymn writer William Cooper, he wrote this in in his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. He wrote, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. John is continuing to tell us here who Jesus is. Not only is he the bread of life and the light of the world, but these statements point to the truth that this means that Jesus is God. Jesus is God the Son. Job the Old Testament prophet, he, he points to this when he, when he asks a rhetorical question and then he answers it in Job chapter 9, verses 4 to 8. He says this, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him, meaning God, and succeeded? Who has hardened himself against God and succeeded? Here's his answers. He who removes the mountains and they know it not, When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who sets himself against 
that God, the God who trampled the waves of the sea. He's talking about the mighty power of God. Who is it that tramples the waves of the sea? Well, it's the same one of whom the psalmist wrote about in Psalm 77. We looked at this a few weeks ago. He wrote this, the psalmist says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. In other words, the same God who led his people through the Red Sea on dry land freeing them from their Egyptian slavery. He is the same God who plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. This is the same God. John tells us in in John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And, And doesn't the Creator, doesn't the Creator have authority and dominion over his creation? From the beginning... Genesis tells us that God was hovering over the face of the waters. And here now the Son of Man, the Son of God, is walking on that water. He's walking over the face of the waters. There can be no doubt that the disciples understood that they were seeing something incredible. They were seeing something fantastic, something amazing, and it drove them to fear and trembling. These experienced fishermen, experienced sailors, This is the proper response to seeing God, fear and trembling. Many today claim that they have seen the Son of God. He was loving and cuddly. But nearly every time someone encounters the the very Godness of the Son of God, he has to say to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That's what he tells his disciples here, really in the climax statement of this section. Verse 20, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, Jesus says this, he says these words, or at least it's written in Greek, which is the the common language of his day. It's Koine Greek, actually, and Koine means common. It's the common Greek language of his day. All the trading uh, um, uh, merchants spoke this language throughout the empire. But this first part, it is I, this is a verb. It's a verb of existence. It means to be or to have existence. Jesus says here, I am. Do not be afraid. I am. Do not be afraid. Jesus speaks here what theologians sometimes call the the sacred divine formula for the name of God, the name God called himself, I am. Jesus is claiming for himself right here in John chapter 6, verse 20. He is claiming for himself the name that Moses heard at the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3, when God said to Moses, if I come... Or Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, 
I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am. Now some believe that when he said this, I think maybe that's a stretch. Jesus is speaking in a common language here. He doesn't use the word Yahweh, which is what the Hebrew word is, name is. They say he's just trying to identify himself for the disciples. It's me, Jesus. Don't be afraid. But there's nothing common about any of this. There's nothing common at all here. His disciples have just witnessed this miraculous feeding of 5,000 families who then proclaim him to be the prophet that Moses had told them of, that God had promised. And so they try to take him by force to be their king. There is nothing common there, especially when we realize that he says this. He says, it is I, don't be afraid. He says this as he's standing firmly atop rolling sea billows. As he's standing firmly atop the water. It is I, do not be afraid. In John's gospel, I am, it's central, it's the central mark of Jesus' identification. John is telling us that Jesus is God, that Jesus is I am. He said it to the woman at the well when he said, I who speak to you am he. Later in this chapter, the verse that we're keeping our eye on, John 6.35, He says, I am the bread of life. He'll say to the Jews in chapter 8, verse 58, the Jewish leadership, he will say, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus' words here are anything but common. Standing where only Jesus has the authority to stand, on rolling sea billows, he declares what only Jesus can claim, I am. The one of the unconsumed burning bush, who alone can trample the waves of the sea, who plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm, is the one who stands there saying, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. John really gives us no further explanation. Just just a simple narrative account. Puts a little emotion on it. They were glad. Some versions say they were willing. They were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately, uh, the boat was at the land to which they were going. I've heard this preached from Matthew before, that that like Peter, they would say, you got to get out of your boat, whatever your boat might be. Maybe that's the point in Matthew. But here, here, they were glad that I am got into their boat. They were glad that Jesus climbed into their boat. They were confused, they were scared, yet they were willing and even glad to receive him. The call of the Christian, the task of discipleship is just like this. 
It's trusting in the inexplicable, all-consuming God who has, who has made known to us Himself. And, and He has done so in and through Jesus Christ. He has told us who He is. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us through Jesus Christ. doesn't mean having all of our questions answered or all of our doubts resolved. It means discipleship and trusting in Jesus, being glad that He gets in the boat. It means trusting in the God who simply says, I am. Don't be afraid. It is I. Don't be afraid. And trusting in the God who alone stretched out the heavens and tramples on the waves of the sea. Trust in Him. Our God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Don't be afraid. That's the message for you to take home today. Don't be afraid. Let's pray. God, some of us are afraid. We're afraid because of our circumstances or our future, our past. We're afraid to let our guard down. God, we're afraid of all kinds of things. But when Jesus speaks, when Jesus speaks to his disciples, he says, It is I. Don't be afraid. Help us to trust in Him, to trust in You, our good and loving God, the I Am, the great I Am. And take away our fear, Lord, that we would trust in You, and not be afraid. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.